Today's Ringer FC is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. Having trouble finding shirts that fit? At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Shirts start at $80 and are delivered in just two weeks. Perfect fit is guaranteed. If a shirt doesn't fit, they will remake it for free. The whole process is risk-free. So, for premium quality, perfect-fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com slash FC and use gift code FC to get $20 off your first custom shirt today. Hey, it's Liz Kelly. Before you start the show, here are a few things that are going on at The Ringer this week. The NFL kicks off on Thursday, and college football is officially back, so we've got Dual Threat with Ryan Rossillo on Wednesday and the Ringer NFL show in full swing with new shows every day of the week. Also, we'll be doing our first ever NFL wins pool, which you can check out live on Tuesday and after the fact on YouTube. On the site, Alyssa Bereznik has a feature going up about the future of the magazine cover, which you can check out on TheRinger.com. Yo, 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 Ringer FC, this is Johnny Kwok, East Coast Bureau Chief of the Ringer. I have the Alexander Lacazette to my Obomayang. It's Ryan O'Hanlon. I would never Cruyff the ball in my own box. I just want to <laughs> state that for the record before we start. Absent today is Micah Peters. I guess he's our Leroy Sané, left out of the squad. <laughs> he just got, he's got, got, some... got his call up to the German national team finally, though. <laughs> He's got some splinting to do. Anyway, we're back. We've had a month now in the Premier League, four matches. The last time around, we did some massive overreactions to the first two weeks. Now that two more weeks have passed, we can do buy or sell on trends after the first month in the Premier League. It's about a good time for that, right? Don't you think, Ryan? Uh, I wouldn't be here if I didn't think it was. I would have boycotted. (laughs) So without further ado, let's go into some trends. And the first trend, actually, Ryan, you teased it in your open. Forcing your goalkeeper to play the ball from the back is a suicidal strategy. Buy or sell? Sell. I uh, Doesn't it feel like we're kind of, we had this conversation, not us in particular, but two years ago when uh, Pep brought in Claudio Bravo, and he just had that complete disaster against Manchester United, and everyone decried, you know, having a keeper who decided to try to use his feet. Um, but I think this year there are, there's obviously a, tre- a, a trend of this happening, right? Yeah, before, before you go on, let me just, just in case you guys didn't watch the past weekend, Allison, Liverpool keeper, attempted a Cruyff turn, was dispossessed, and actually conceded that that led to the first goal Liverpool have conceded all season. Yes. Uh, Peter Cech continued his adventures, uh, gave the ball away twice at least against Cardiff City, and uh, Cardiff City didn't capitalize on it, but it was still very nervous for him uh, playing uh, from the back in Emery's new style. And Michelle Vorm, filling in for Loris for Tottenham, had a goal kick where he just kicked it straight out of bounds. So <laughs> we're, we're seeing now, more than ever, 
Uh, I mean, and you mentioned Pep and, and Bravo a couple of years ago. Obviously, Ederson is sort of the standard now for, or the high standard for ball-playing goalkeepers. But not everyone can be Ederson. So uh, you're seeing more and more mistakes. And I think uh, the criticism of that strategy is that at some points in the game, it's best to just boot the ball. Um, and it seems like keepers now are, are, you know, under the instructions of the managers, kind of um, obsessed with playing short passes and, and keeping the ball on the ground. So, Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there just needs to be, it, you can't, like, being dogmatic about anything in soccer is a, a quick way to just get fired basically and have everything go against you. I think that there's, I am pro the idea of involving your keeper in possession because just adding an extra player into your possession phase, like why would you not do that if you were capable of it? Go 11 v 10 rather than 10 v 10. And I think um, if you can do that successfully, it, it, it takes your attack to another level and it probably in a weird way, improves your defense just because it allows you to p- to possess the ball for a little longer. But there has to be an intelligence about it too because, you know, you watch the the goal Liverpool gave up against Leicester. Uh, part of it is Virgil van Dijk plays a sloppy back pass to Allison, but he also is willing to play a back pass to him when there are defenders sort of on rushing and he's willing to put his keeper in that position and I think partially because we've just, Allison has a reputation, rightfully so, for being pretty good with the ball at his feet. But once the bad pass gets played, like, what is the benefit of, so Allison tries to Cruyff the ball um, past Kalechi and Nacho in his own box. What would be the benefit of if that came off? You know what I mean? It's like, okay, then <laughs> low you key, just, Low key, I think that was a foul, too, on Ian Nacho. But anyway. It's kind of surprised. I mean, I, I wonder if like he didn't have the reputation of a guy who was pushing the limits too far if he would have gotten that call. But, you know, it's in that situation, maybe Van Dyke shouldn't pa- even pass it back. And I think Allison, without a doubt, should have just booted the ball out. But I think for the most part, involving your keeper and inviting pressure and being able to eliminate a striker who kind of closes down a keeper, I think is overall a good thing. Um, but there just has to be situational awareness which there just was not on Saturday but you're watching it with like Peter Cech who has never played a style like this before and that's just a whole different animal in my opinion after the Arsenal Cardiff City match uh, the Cardiff City manager Neil Warnock intimated that it was part of his strategy or part of the team strategy to kind of press have forwards press and create mistakes which they did you would imagine that that strategy now is going to become more popular with uh, keepers playing the ball at their feet. You would think so, but I think in a way that is what Pep or what Klopp probably wants because they trust their keepers to be able to play out of the pressure. And if you you can suck a team's defense up the field, if you're Liverpool and City, teams that are just going to dominate possession and can at times struggle against deeper blocks, I think that's what they ultimately want. It's just, again, being smart about it. But with Arsenal, it's in an ideal world, I think that's what Emery would want. But I just don't, it's, we don't have any history suggesting that Peter Cech is capable 
of playing out of that pressure, right? I, I'm buying, maybe because I'm an Arsenal fan, but I'm buying on this trend that it's suicidal. I think we're going to see more and more calamitous mistakes. I mean, it works in five-a-side, but I, I, I feel like there aren't that many keepers that are that uh, adept at handling the ball as Ederson or Manuel Noer. Um, and, you know, you can't really recreate... I mean, you can obviously practice this in training and, and practice with the ball at your feet, the keepers, but um, you can't really recreate those game situations. The, the you know, like you mentioned, getting a bad pass uh, and being forced to kind of make a decision. So I think this is something we'll see continue as long as this trend or this strategy of, of ball playing keepers continues. It'll be interesting. You're on the... Daryl Morey, uh, famously, or not famously, but he hates this. He tweeted about this recently. He thinks that passing the ball back to your keeper is basically the dumbest thing you can do because of the downside <laughs> of fucking it up is you give up a goal. And it's kind of, it's one of those things where it's like, it's kind of impossible to quantify the upside, you know? Because right. it's, it's not like, I mean, unless it's Ederson just hitting an 80-yard pass that leads to a goal, you can't right. really trace the possession you're getting back to the benefit. So it's like if you do screw up once and you give up a goal, it's almost impossible to prove that the rest of the time is worth it. Right. Right. Well, since we're doing buy sell trends, but since Liverpool are top of the league, since I predicted them to win the league, and since Micah's not here, <laughs> I just I just gathered together a bunch because Liverpool had a bunch of little news hits and I just gathered them all together to give you a chance to do some quick reactions. Are you ready? I am. Jordan Henderson just signed a new long-term deal. React. I am pro this. Uh, it's a five-year deal, which he's 28. Five years. I didn't know it was five years. Damn. Yeah. That is I, a long-term deal. It's rare that you, I think, see a f soccer player signing a five-year deal, especially for a guy who's 28, which is you know doesn't seem that old, but that takes you to 33, playing f five years in a Klopp system. Uh, with famously sort of shaky legs. Um, I don't know how that's going to look for the last few years of the deal, but I think this is just like, you know, Henderson's the captain, been one of the sort of most ever-present players in the kind of transition from Steven Gerrard era to the now, um, what is now definitively the Klopp era. He's just been the defining figure. Um so I think like it's the kind of thing if if the club didn't re-up Henderson, I feel like a lot of players would sort of look skeptically at the team and be like, you know what, is this <laughs> is this a place I would want to go if they're gonna just discard someone like that? Yeah, um, I also think I also think Klopp has been bullish from the get go about having an English spine. Mm -hmm. uh, not not only Henderson, but obviously the new guys, Ox, Gomez. Alexander-Arnold. Yep. So. Yeah, I think that that definitely plays a part in it too. Um, in addition to the uh, the next guy you're going to ask me about. Oh yeah, so I just saw this stat. I don't know who produced it, so sorry. No credit here. But James Milner has now registered 80 Premier League assists. The same number as who? David Beckham. <laughs> Only six, six players have more assists in the Premier League. Obviously, the Premier League stats only go to 92, but... Ryan Giggs, Fabregas, Rooney, Lampard, Dennis Bergkamp, Stevie G in that order. But Milner, wow. <laughs> Milner is 
amazing. <laughs> Never ages. Does the same thing every time and successful. He's got to be one of the most. Well, he's probably the prime person who will eventually be looked at as so underrated. He's overrated. <laughs> um, I mean, he. I think so. Liverpool signed him on a free transfer. Um, after he didn't re-sign with Manchester City, and I think he's exceeded expectations in every way. I think even, you know, coming into this season, after they signed Fabinho and Naby Keita, no one was even really talking of about Milner as a starter anymore. It, all of all of the kind of permutations of the lineup you saw going around in preseason did not involve him, and he's just arguably been Liverpool's best player so far this season. What does he do so... What do you think he does so well, particularly? I mean, I think he, one, covers an insane amount of ground, which is important for a Klopp system. You can, you know, Liverpool put their fitness test, preseason fitness test, online. And it was funny before, you know, they start, one of the assistants asks Klopp who's going to win, and he looks at him and he's like, Milner, no question. And Milner just totally destroyed the fitness test, um, despite being 32. So he covers so much space. He's actually really good, I think, in tight areas. Um, he's underrated feet. And I think he's just a, like a very good passer of the ball if he has space. So I think he kind of, you know, he he's played as an attacking midfielder in the past. He played as a fucking center forward briefly for Manchester City. So I think with Klopp, where it's kind of all of your midfielders are midfielders and attackers at once, I, I think he's in a, in a lot of ways the ideal player for a Klopp system. Right. You mentioned it. My next point or piece of news is wither Fabinho. Why hasn't Fabinho played a minute yet? Well, part of it is the guy that we just mentioned. <laughs> um, and I think I think what I would probably chalk it up to is that it's, I think it's just, you know, we saw with Ox last year, it took Ox four or five months to get up to speed and become yeah, a... He, made, he, was, he, he was making the match day squads, at least. That's true. Not making the match day squad is not great. That, that maybe speaks a little bit towards Liverpool's depth, I think, in some ways. Right. Um, and I mean, Klopp kind of used just extremely vague language and said that he is good, basically, <laughs> as as his description for him not being in the team. But I, I think it's, I think we probably overestimated Fabinho. He's was probably more of a depth signing than a frontline starter. Um, yeah. like he he isn't necessarily noticeably better than Jordan Henderson right now. But in the future, maybe, he's still 24. So I think it's probably a combination of new system and the depth that Liverpool has and familiar players that they have. is just, they have more familiar players, basically, because Klopp has been there for longer. That's me yeah. putting, it, putting my rose-colored glasses on and describing it. The opposite would be that he is just nowhere near Tra as good as the club thought he was going to be. Trash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Now, I mean, you know, Liverpool are playing in four competitions so uh, any reaction or negative reaction to this is an overreaction in my opinion yeah i think so um but you would like him to get uh <laughs> get into the match day team that's not great yeah. uh the next bit is actually kind of um, can lead into a trend okay. question uh because liverpool 
it was discovered this week. I mean, I'm sure they've had him for a while, but it the news came out this week that they have a specialized coach specifically to coach throw-ins. It's a gentleman by the name of Thomas Granemark from Denmark who actually holds the record, the Guinness record for the longest throw-in at 51.3 meters, which translates to 56 fucking yards. Jesus Christ. <laughs> which I had to like double take and make sure I wasn't doing the conversion wrong. That means he th- can throw a football as a throw in half the distance of a American football field. Is that really possible? We need to, I, mean, I need to see, this is like those Nike commercials where you don't know if it's real. I like, I would need to see this guy do it in person to actually believe anyone could throw a soccer ball that far. Uh, I'm reading from the BBC story about, it was like a short little profile of Granemark. And uh, it said, quote, Granemark teaches three types of throw-in, the long throw-in, the fast throw-in, which can launch counterattacks, and the clever throw-in, which is about keeping possession under pressure. Granemark says there are 25 to 30 technical aspects to a long throw, and he uses video analysis to make improvements, which can see players improve their distance by four to eight meters on average (laughs) and double the throwing area. Flexible rather than strong players are best at throw-ins and is obviously an essential skill for a fullback. So, you know, this story came out. uh, Of course, people like Andy Gray, old school people, were sort of mocking the idea that you need a coach specifically for throw-ins. Other people were saying, I mean, this is kind of how football is now with you're seeing with, you know, set pieces in general. Um, You know, you saw as a carryover from the World Cup, like, specific plays, designing plays, almost American football style, uh, uh, where people should go. Throw-ins, there's like, you know, 50 or so throw-ins your team does in a game. It kind of makes sense to me that you would have someone to specialize in coaching that. So I guess what I'm getting to here in a long-winded way is the trend is, do you think that we're approaching a day or a time when we see, you know, like an American football team has like a fucking assistant tight ends coach and like special teams and like every position has a coach basically. I don't think we're going to go that far, but are you, do you see soccer trending more towards that model where there are going to be highly specialized experts for different, very kind of minute aspects of the game? I do. I I think it can only go so far because soccer is such a, dynamic game where everything random as you random say. everything kind of what you're doing on offense affects what you're doing on defense so even having like an offensive and defensive coordinator seems like it would almost be impossible because they have to be in concert with each other but for isolated things like this like throw-ins set pieces um i mean penalties it's probably not, i mean all these yep. clubs are so rich they can probably afford to have a full-time penalty sort of analyst I, yep. I think it, it. I buy the idea of more specialized coaches. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like this guy's probably getting paid like what Virgil Van Dyke makes in three weeks is his annual salary. <laughs> so it's like yeah. it's not you're not not you're not losing resources somewhere else. I don't think, and it's just like throwing. Did you guys pra- did you practice throw-ins and in, in, when you were at Holy Cross? No. Um, I mean, we you have didn't even like, pra- you didn't even practice them. No, just like when you're scrimmaging, obviously you have to throw in the ball, but you didn't like. I, when we would scrimmage, I think we would almost just do kick-ins. Like you just put the ball down and play it back in to like make sure the game would just keep going. That's kind of how little 
we emphasized it. I mean, you, there were like a handful of teams that would have a guy that could do a long throw, um, and we would know about that on the scouting report, but we never really practice it. The one <laughs> in high school, my coach made us practice it my freshman year, and he had this play where one person would go to take the throw in, then they'd say that they didn't want to take it, so another person would run over. And when this first person was walking away, you would throw it off of their back so it hit their back and bounce back to you. Oh, it's like an NBA inbounds. Yeah, um, and that's actually illegal. It's considered trickery, which I didn't know was in the rule book. So, like a stupid thing like that is the main thing we practice. But the thing about throw-ins is like you can't be offside on a throw-in. So, like a team like Liverpool, where Salah and Mane can just sprint down the line, and you can just launch a ball down the line, that seems like a no-brainer. And then the other thing is Ted Knutson, who's been on this pod before, pointed this out. You have your head up when you're taking a throw-in in a way that you don't when you're taking a free kick because you have to you know, look down to strike the ball. So you can kind of analyze where guys are moving to, I think, in a way that you can't when you're taking a free kick. So I think it just it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. It's interesting to me, too, because obviously Liverpool are a top team. We mm-hmm. usually associate the long throw-in strategy with like the Rory Delap Stoke is the classic example or, or these kind of... Uh, Mid, mid to lower table teams who can't score otherwise looking to kind of, you know, conjure up goals fr- from those situations. But, you know, Liverpool, it, it's, it's smart. You know, they're exploiting every possible angle. So, I mean, have you noticed as a fan anything special with the throw-ins in the first four games? Not really. I mean, I think there are a couple more kind of fast and lower throws down the sideline. Um, but for the most part, I, I haven't. But that might just because I be because I... I don't have this subtle eye. The, the other thing I would say to Andy Gray, which, which I did find it kind of weird that the old school pundits were obsessed by this or upset by this. The first goal in Premier League history was scored on a long throw in. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't even know Andy Gray was back on the air, actually, until I, I saw Andy Gray mocks. This. So, you know, it's uh, I, I did not know that either. Um, yeah. And he's wrong once again. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. That said, if anyone from Arsenal Football Club is listening, I'll be your throwing coach. <laughs> Hire Donnie. <laughs> All right, moving on. Buy or sell, I can kind of predict what you're going to say to this. But before you do, let me actually, first I'll say the trend, which is Watford are the new Leicester, meaning potential title winners. Uh, Watford has a perfect record, of course, after four games, along with Liverpool and Chelsea. Here's an interesting stat that was doing the rounds on Twitter. Watford finished 14th last season on 41 points with 11 wins, 8 draws, 19 losses. Ryan, let me ask you, what do you think Leicester finished the year before they won the title? I'm going to take a wild guess and say that it was the same. (laughs) Exactly the same. 14th place. 41 points, 11 wins, 8 draws, and 19 losses. Fate. Hornets. Title winners, 2018-19. No, anyway, you're obviously, we're selling on the trend of Watford winning the title. But how real do you think? I mean, I guess we talked a little bit about it uh, in the last episode uh, with Watford and Bournemouth winning their first two games. Two games later, Watford are still unbeaten, undefeated. I would almost buy the trend if we were considering like 
Leicester as the best team outside of the top six. <laughs> I think there's a world where Watford are that version of Leicester. I think, you know, their defense has been awesome so far. Uh, they've given up three goals. Only Liverpool have given up conceded fewer expected goals. So it's not just like a hot keeper or something like that. I think, fewer shots faced on target this season? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, you don't kind of, you associate fewest shots with the bigger teams because they have all the possession, right? So that just speaks to what Watford's doing well defensively. I think their attack has been running a little hot. I think it'll probably come back, back down to earth. But it's like, if you want to be the team that overperforms their talent and even kind of their style, the team with a, f- a legitimately great defense who finishes all their chances is probably the best way to do it, I would think. Yeah, and, and we meant, we were talking about set pieces. They scored off set pieces against Spurs yep. uh, over the weekend to win. And you speaking of the defense, Christian Casabelli, center back, no Premier League player has made more interceptions than he has. Arsenal should be looking at him. Um, we also have a, another possible Coltero in Will Hughes, midfielder. He's not albino. I had to Google that. He looks... <laughs> is that offensive for me to even say? No, it's just no, a al- fact. It's just, yeah, al- albino is a condition, right? Yes. So I thought he was because he's so fucking blonde. Like every... He, he's blonde, blonde eyebrows, blonde everything. He kind of looks like an albino, but he's not. <laughs> That's, but that anyway, changes everything. <laughs> he's at the center of everything and he's one of those kind of all energy type of dudes that's scrappy but uh you know gifted and uh and then we've we've talked about Dini Roberto Perea I mean they got a lot of good guys Decore it's a solid team and they have a lot of continuity I was surprised to I think I was saw it on Statsbomb that they're one of the oldest teams in the Premier League that's interesting right but it, it goes to show too I mean they have a lot of experience um I mean they've only been up I guess for four years this group but this is their fourth season uh, but you know, it's kind of like a. It's interesting too, since Watford has been known for switching managers so frequently, uh, that this team still feels like a kind of has like a philosophy and a well-drilled unit, even with having you know Javi Garcia being only there for less than a year. Ewing theory for Richarlison. it's possible hey I have another stat they're tied with Liverpool Watford is with the most home points uh, since January 21st which is when Gracia was hired damn yeah I mean they're when he came in their defense has been really good basically since he's been there Um, and it's just we've talked about this before for a team like Watford it's it's easier for a team like that to build a really good defense than it is to build a high flying attack but like Dini is we joke about him all the time, but he's not a bad player, <laughs> you know? I think no. you could, he's probably a, roughly equates to a league average player, but I think he's really hard to play against, and I think Andre Gray is actually pretty good. Um, it's uh, I'm buying on the defense, and I, I think the attack is probably going to come back to earth a little bit, but like... They're going to be a pain in the ass to play against, I think, for all the top six teams, for sure. Don't they still have Delefeu? They do. He just hasn't played yet. Uh, I should mention that I saw in the news, or I saw a rumor at least, that Gracia was 
um, in the early stages of signing an extended contract. So maybe Watford are ready to settle on their man. And I think what you were saying before is that as far as them being the new Leicester, maybe not a title-winning team, obviously, because like it would have to be uh, a miracle, I guess. You know, everything will have to fall into place for them yeah. to be at the top at the end of the season. But to be uh, a ninth, eighth, you know, on the on the brink of Europe type team, it's possible. I mean, five thirty-eight has them projected to finish in seventh with fifty-five points right now, eight back of Man U and three ahead of Leicester. So, I mean, we should say you know Watford started strong last year, of course, before uh, Marco Silver was uh, sacked. Their next five matches, uh, Watford's are Man United at Fulham, at Arsenal, Bournemouth, at Wolves. That's tough. It's a tough schedule. That is tough. But looking at that, it makes me like realize that there's just a lot of decent teams in the Premier League. Yeah, you know? there are. There are. All right, let's move on. Actually, just a quick mini trend since we just talked about Watford and they just beat Spurs. A lot of Spurs fans were talking about, after the, especially after the Man United win two weeks ago, that nobody's talking about Spurs and we're a real title contender, this and that. Buy or sell, Spurs are not actually real title contenders. They're not. I'm, I apologize to all of the Tottenham fans who are upset that we didn't talk about them last time. But uh, <laughs> there is some... There's something, I think, going on at Tottenham. They, they, didn't, they were not very good for the last two months of last season. And this season, they've basically either been able to score, but their defense has been terrible, or in the Watford game, they, their defense actually played well minus the set pieces, but they couldn't create anything. And the Harry Kane situation is it's not great. What do you mean? Just because he looks tired and... I, he just slow. so he averaged was averaging over six shots per game before he got hurt last year, which is like Ronaldo, Messi, and no one else does that. Um, and since he's been back, those numbers have totally plummeted. I think he's averaging like below league average number of shots this year, and that's just if Harry Kane isn't the Harry Kane that we saw last year. Like, that's Tottenham's best player is now not, you know, not an elite player currently. And that's, like, that is a huge blow to Tottenham going forward. So I think it's just, it's concerning to me. Um, yeah. Two caveats, though. He's he's always bad in August, as we know. This is true. He didn't and take also, many shots last August either, so we should say that. And our boy Sonny's coming back. Also... Got his military exemption after winning the gold with Korea in the Asian Games over what Japan. What a conflict, two to one. conflict of emotions that must have been for you. <laughs> I was There was no conflict at all. I was elated on his behalf. But, okay. so, so he'll be coming back. And, and uh, Sonny and Harry played really well together uh, for most of last season. So that would help. That's true. I mean, I think but, they'll but be... But Dembele's washed. <laughs> <laughs> but they... they... <laughs> Are playing out of your old again, so that's like a new signing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's. Uh, I think I would still feel comfortable about them finishing top four, but I, I think it was kind of a bit of a mirage that they were undefeated going into the Watford game. Okay, sorry, Spurs fans, but at least you get Sunny back. All right, more trends now, bigger trends, macro trends, not team specific. Fullback is the most valuable position in the Premier League. 
and wingers, the position of wing is dead. I'm going to buy the second part. And wingers are dead? Yes. I, I think that fullbacks are extremely important, and basically how you navigate your fullbacks often is kind of defines how good your team ultimately is. So I guess I'm I'm just buying the whole thing now now that I say this. Um <laughs> you know, so like basically wait, we include wingbacks here. Yeah, well I think that's kind of the, this all goes together. The wingbacks exist now because most quote unquote wingers are guys that are playing on the opposite side from their strong foot and they cut in and try to score goals. You know, Mohamed Salah right. played as a winger technically last year when he broke the Premier League record for goals. Um, and so when you have guys cutting in from the outside, you need someone to cover the space out wide. But, you know, you're then asking a single player to cover 80 yards of space basically by himself. And that's kind of an impossible task a lot of the time. So... By putting in a third center back, you it allows the wing backs to cover that space, and then they don't have to track back as aggressively because there are three defenders back instead of instead of four. So I think that kind of give and take is one of the defining sort of tactical, you know, decisions that are that's going on in the Premier League right now. Um, who which? Premier League team, do you think has the best pair of fullbacks? We have, I'll give you some options here. We have Benjamin Mendy and Kyle Walker for City. Your boys, Alexander Arnold. Yep, there Roberts, you go. Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> Bellerin in Montreal. Aspilicueta and Alonso. Alonso has been, you know, I saw this stat on Match of the Day that since Alonso has been in the Premier League, he has fucking 14 goals and seven assists. That's a lot. 14 goals is a crazy number of goals for a fullback in like two years. I mean, I guess he does He does score on set pieces a decent amount, but I mean, the goal against uh, Arsenal, right, was a uh, Hazard crossed the ball to Alonso and it wasn't yeah. like a set piece. It was just in the run of play and somehow and their fullback was... In the box. And you saw it against Bournemouth, too, that he he was, like, in the center of the box and had a chance. I think it almost it might have gone off the post. Um, he's kind of omnipresent. He is, but also in that Arsenal game, how many of those cutbacks yeah. <laughs> came from his side of the field in the first half? It's true. You know, it's interesting because I, I, we've been listing these fullback pairings. All the top six teams have, I mean, it's, I guess it's no surprise. There's one team you didn't mention. Oh, Luke Shaw? <laughs> Valencia? Sean Valencia. Uh, I think, to me, the best is Mendy and Walker, and that's also the most expensive pairing by, like, an exponential degree. Yeah. Um, but is it interesting? I mean, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here, but we're talking about fullback pairings the way we might have in the past talked about center-back pairings. It's true. It's true. It's interesting. It is really interesting. I think it's interesting because of what teams ask their fullbacks to do, I think. Um, right. And it's, I think Tottenham is, Trippier is interesting because he's become, you know, both a cult hero and kind of a pretty influential attacking player. But 
James York, who writes for The Ringer um, and works for StatsBomb, just wrote a piece for StatsBomb. Like, I saw that piece. A crazy amount of the chances that Tottenham gives up come from Trippier's side of the field. And you can't, t- I mean, you don't, we don't know exactly the responsibilities that players are tasked with, but a lot of that does have to come down to him. So it's like, is it, you know, like he's doing half of the fullback's job, right? And the the second half just is not, they're not getting the defensive production they need. So, you know, it's it's just a tough position to play. Yeah. I mean, you see the same thing with Bellerin. We mentioned Alonso. They're good going forward, but, you know, in the defensive end, perhaps, you know, not as responsible as fullbacks of your. Yeah, and I, I think... You know, you see a lot of teams have kind of one more defensive fullback and one more attacking one, which I guess, in theory, that's kind of what the Bellerin uh, Monreal right. pairing is. Because even Monreal was playing as the left sided center back in a back three. So even you can even, I guess, kind of look at it like a lopsided back four. But yeah, it's, uh, it's just interesting. It's the, T.A., Trent Alexander-Arnold, Andy Robertson, compared to Mendy and Walker, just from a financial perspective, is pretty interesting to see, like, the best team in the league clearly values fullbacks a ton based on how much yeah. money they splash in the position. And, and that's remember not how, say- much, the, how much stick they got, or Pep got, like, how much are you spending on fullbacks <laughs> two years ago, you know? <laughs> he did, and then I guess, you know, Getting a hundred points in the following season shuts everyone <laughs> up. But then Liverpool, I I think, I think the Liverpool, the fact that Liverpool hasn't spent that much on their fullbacks, just speaks to the fact that they happen to have a really talented teenager, and then they just got lucky on a guy they signed from Hull. And like, there's an alternate reality where they spent a ton of money on fullbacks this summer. Yeah, the guy, uh, Robertson, by the way, speaking of, it just got named captain uh, of Scotland. Shout out to him. (laughs) I missed that in the Liverpool news roundup. All right, let's move on to the next trend, which is parking the bus is going out of style as a tactic. Of course, we're still going to see teams park the bus, but this trend was inspired by a Michael Cox piece I read. I think it was on The Guardian on fortune favoring the brave in football management. And I quote him here in this piece. Managers of mid-table or bottom-half clubs will only impress larger employers if they demonstrate their capacity to play good, attractive football, particularly when playing big clubs. He mentioned in the piece the examples of Pochettino when he was at Southampton, of course, eventually went to Spurs, Marcus Silva at Watford last season, of course, now at Everton. And of course, now we have the examples of Eddie Howe at Bournemouth, Djokovic at Fulham, and Nuno Espirito Santo at Wolves. Basically, the idea being... and and, and uh, Benitez, Rafa Benitez is obviously an older manager that has taken some stick in the last couple of weeks for parking the bus against uh, Chelsea and against Manchester City. He's set in his ways and that's kind of, he's already managed at all the big clubs, but the smaller clubs with managers that are sort of on the rise, it's almost better to play attacking football and get beaten than to park the bus and just hope to eke out a 1-0 win. Uh, according to this piece or according to this idea by herself? I sell the idea that it's easier to win if you're more attacking as a smaller team or you you, you win more often. I, I think 
as a smaller team, you want to limit the number of goals that there are in a game, which kind of, you know, then if you just score in a set piece, you win one nothing. that's, um, there you go. But I buy the idea that teams are being more attacking. Um, there was a piece last week from 21st Club, this consultancy that works with a bunch of teams in Europe. They looked at sort of the profiles of the top 100 teams in the world. 50, 15 years ago, around 50% of the top 100 teams were considered defensive teams, basically. And fewer than 20 were considered very attacking. And in 2018, it's almost flipped, and f- about half of the top 100 teams are attacking teams. Fewer than 25 are defensive. And we're talking about the top 100 teams in the world. That includes a lot of the teams that we're talking about Um Smaller teams in the Premier League are still top 100 teams in the world. So I think we are seeing, I mean, it's probably a good thing for the viewer, ultimately. I mean, I guess that, that that's a matter, matter of personal taste. But I think clubs do generally want attacking managers more than they have in the past for the entertainment value. And I think it's totally spot on the idea that it makes you more appealing to play more attacking soccer as a lower level manager, you know, because it's like Sean Deitch has played extremely defensive soccer and (laughs) has a very complicated (laughs) image in the media, right? It's the the main image of Sean Deitch in the media is Sean Deitch telling the media he needs more respect. (laughs) You know, so it's not like it's not like people seem to be knocking on Sean Deitch's door and being like, we want to hire you. So yeah, I, I think it's the like economics of it all makes sense. Yeah. I mean, speaking of economics, I think an- another trend overall is teams like Fulham being able to buy a player like Jean-Michael Suri yep. and have Andre Scherler. You know, I mean, it's like this is a newly promoted team. They can play attractive football. They can play attacking football because they have world-class talent. And, and that might not have been the case five years ago for the team that we presume will finish like 11th or 12th. Yeah. And I wonder if this trend continues, then the like handful of defensive managers are going to become inordinately successful. And then that's going to be the hot new thing to be a, an organized defensive manager all over again. Yeah. I'm curious, actually, just we hear parking the bus so frequently as a phrase, as a pejorative, really, uh, of how a team sets up. Like, how exactly do you define that? Is that just meaning 10 men behind the ball at all times? Like me, if I think of parking the bus considering that it is used as a negative term, I think of a team that sort of just puts everyone behind the ball and doesn't even try to attack when they get the ball, doesn't even really try to counter. Um, But I think parking the bus gets used to, like, describe teams that are actually really solid defensively and they need more players behind the ball because they're playing a more talented team and... Then there's attacking benefits to playing parking the bus right? Like, because the other team has to push more players forward in possession, you win the ball back, there's more space to attack into. So I think it's, there are times where managers just completely eschew the concept of attacking at all. And that, uh, that deserves to be derided, in my opinion. But well, that was that was Newcastle against Chelsea, I think, in like the first half. Yeah, I would agree. I think they, Chelsea didn't really create many good chances. But at the same time, there are no 
there was no push the other way from Newcastle. And the issue with parking the bus is that you have to basically be perfect, right? Like you make one wrong tackle in the box because there's going to be a lot of tackles you have to make. It's a penalty and your, you know, approach goes out the window or your a deflection happens and then it's one nothing, and you have to completely change the way you're playing. Right. Okay, last trend, which is we mentioned the god Troy Deeney. The old-fashioned center <laughs> forward is back. Good old number nines. I'm talking about players such as Alexander Mitrovic, Fulham, Glenn Murray of Brighton, Marco Arnautovic, Troy Deeney I mentioned, Danny Ings even, we can include him. Basically bullying, scrappy, big, number nine, center forwards, bullying defenders, scoring poachers goals, buy or sell? Buy. I'm all and in actually, on this. Is, it, is this related to the trend we were just talking about, how we talk about fullbacks more than center backs? And maybe the, the, the level of center back pairings now in the Premier League is lower overall? I think if I wanted to offer my theory, I, I agree basically, but I think it's teams want guys like John Stones now that are out there because of their proficiency with the ball at their feet more than anything. Right. And those guys are just less capable of dealing with the kind of bullying, annoying, you know, pest type of center forward. I, I think that would be, that would make a lot of sense to me actually. To, to see a resurgence of ineffectiveness of guys like this against the kind of, you know, more elegant, you know, slight center backs that a lot of teams are employing. I'm going to give you two quick stats, one on Mitrovic, one on Glenn Murray. For Mitrovic, since his debut for Fulham in February, last February, no player has scored more league goals in the top four tiers of English football. Not even your man, Mo Salah. It's got to be wrong. Mitrovic has 16 goals now with the goal he just scored over the weekend. So Damn. And since the start of last season, the beginning of last season, only seven players have more Premier League goals than Glenn Murray, who turns 35 this month. Granted, the players at the top of that list have way more goals than Glenn Murray. <laughs> but it's interesting because you don't necessarily think of Glenn Murray when you think of sort of, you know, the elite footballers, uh, elite forwards in the Premier League. But somehow keeps banging him in. I wish we could have a, we could get the exact date that his hair transplant was done and trace the stats back to that. Ah, interesting. It's interesting, <laughs> his hair transplant, because uh, I saw a close-up of it because he was interviewed after the match, um, after the Brighton match over the weekend. And I guess he scored two goals against uh, Fulham and they tied 2-2. So he, he, the front hairline was all fixed up, but he still has kind of, a thinning patch on top. I don't know if that's supposed to grow in or if he just got the hairline thing. We need answers. Glenn Murray yeah, we... needs to answer for himself. <laughs> so who's your favorite of the bullying number nines currently in the Premier League? I like Mitrovic. I think he's definitely the best one. Um, and I think his kind of nomad, nomadic, I guess, past two years has so, a lot to do with, I, I, you know, there are stories about him being a difficult person to deal with, um, but he's a young, 
young idiot like a lot of us were <laughs> and maybe still are, uh, minus the young part. But he he's he's kind of always he produced whenever he played for Newcastle. Um and he's just he's one of those guys that just he gets a lot of shots off and he's a pain in the ass to deal with in the box because he's gigantic. Um and can kind of score, you know, still my favorite goal this season was him, you know, on all fours, on his, heading on his a, knees, <laughs> heading a ball into the net. That's kind of the defining image of him. I mean, and, and he's the guy's twenty three too, and that's kind of, you know, if he can keep on a straight path, I guess, and you know, not have any off field distraction type stuff, locker room issues. I, I I think he probably has a pretty good career ahead of him. Who's your favorite? Uh, I kind of like Glenn Murray. I, I, I like the way I, Glenn Murray I saw has uh, conceded the most fouls of any player in the Premier League. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think it's funny because he's just annoying. Uh, mm-hmm. I could see how annoying he would be to play against. Uh, but, you know, he scores all kinds of goals. I mean, he scored a penalty over the weekend. Um, but, you know, he's kind of, uh, he's the classic kind of like opportunistic um, striker. Yep. And I like Brighton, so, you know, call him up, Southgate. <laughs> I wonder if he, uh, you know, all these new guys that Brighton signed, if that's kind of vaulted Glenn Murray to a new level, not wanting to lose his spot. <laughs> also, his name is Glenn Murray. It's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there should not be, he should be a professional darts player, not a soccer player. Uh, speaking of number nines, you should mention Lukaku's not exactly an old-fashioned center forward. I would yes. call him more of a hybrid, Agreed. modern, old-fashioned. Scored twice against Burnley over the weekend. And with those two goals, I couldn't believe this stat when I read it. Level with Didier Drogba on 104 Premier League goals. Uh, Lukaku did it in 224 appearances. It took Drogba 254. That's nuts. That kind of That's amazing. I mean, Drogba is a is a legend, a Chelsea legend, a Premier League legend. Lukaku's going to have more goals than him in fewer appearances. I think that has a lot to do with what we were talking about, about teams just being more attacking now. And I think Drogba, it's crazy. You look back at his numbers, he's scored, he only scored 20 goals twice in a Premier League season. And you, you think of Drogba as someone who is doing that basically every year. And that's yeah. to say nothing about Drogba's ability. Um, it's just the teams he played for. Yeah, I think it's two things with Drogba that makes it, it seemed like he would have more goals. One, I'm an Arsenal fan. He scored shitload of goals against Arsenal. And two, he scored so many goals, like important goals, yep. that they feel like they should be like worth five goals. I agree. Including in Champions League and, and, and things like that. We'll take a break right here and we'll come back. We'll do a quick roundup of Europe, a preview of the Champions League and the UEFA Nations League. Do you find yourself distracted, forgetting things, making mistakes at work? A quality night's sleep makes all the difference. And the right mattress is the difference between resting and just laying down. The right mattress is the Lisa mattress. The Lisa mattress is the product of more than 30 years of experience in mattress engineering and hundreds of hours of testing. Comprised of three foam layers that provide cooling pressure relief, body contouring, and support, the Lisa mattress is the best mattress at the best value. Over 300,000 happy Lisa sleepers agree. The Lisa mattress gives them the rest they need. Order your Lisa mattress online at lisa.com slash fc and try it risk-free 
for 100 nights. It ships direct to your door in a convenient box and with free shipping and free returns. And you can buy Lisa for a fraction of the cost of traditional mattresses. So find the right mattress for you at lisa.com slash FC. Don't miss Lisa's limited time Labor Day sale where you can get up to $235 off your Lisa mattress when you go to lisa.com slash FC. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash F-C. Okay, we're back. Champions League draw just happened. Uh, how do you feel about Liverpool's draw, Ryan? Uh, let me remind the listeners that Liverpool have PSG, Napoli, and Cervena uh, Zvezveda. Red Star Belgrade has, they're also known. <laughs> Why does it say Shervena Shveveda on my list? I guess that's the the English media is now adapting the uh, Serbian pronunciation. Um, Red Star Belgrade. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, only two teams in that group who have won the Champions League before: Liverpool and uh, Red Star. <laughs> I think show them their respect. <laughs> I came into this being a confident Liverpool fan and just a confident general person in, in regard to Liverpool in the sense that, like, it was whoever was drawing Liverpool was the one who was getting screwed because they were by far the best team in the third pot. Probably would have been the best, I think definitely would have been the best team in the second pot also. But, you know, it's hard, based on how each pot came out, I, I this was the worst possible draw that Liverpool could have gotten. It's... uh. The only group where there's three teams that are in the top 11 of 538's global rankings. Um, that's not great, because usually, usually you would want, uh, <laughs> you know, three, all of those teams to be in the round of 16, considering they're in the top 11. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I still think Liverpool will be fine, because I think they're very good, but they just have a fucking terrible September ahead of them now. Um so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. But I, I think you're probably, in my opinion, you're probably, Napoli is the one that is pissed about this more than Liverpool. Because Liverpool was in the third pot, so they were going to conceivably have a tough pairing no matter what. Other English teams, Spurs in there, Group B with Barcelona, PSV, and Inter. Uh, United get Juventus, Valencia, Young Boys, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, we'll be coming back to Old Trafford and mm-hmm. City. I have Shakhtar, Donetsk, Lyon, Hoffenheim. I would imagine I could see all the, all four English teams going through. I, I would. I think. I think they're they're all favored to go through. Is how I would say it. But just playing the percentages, I would say one of them won't get through. Um, Man U is just such a tough team to kind of project anything with because of all the uncertainty and weirdness with their recent performances but I mean this is for City it's you know it's a walk in the park this group so and all of these uh, group stage fixtures actually start this month so yep all right let's quickly pivot to La Liga first of all we mentioned and it's been reported of course that La Liga will stage a regular season match in the United States they announced that today I think it's official now Barcelona Girona Against Girona in Miami. Girona, am I pronouncing it right? Yep. Barcelona, Girona. <laughs> it rhymes in Miami. 
uh, at the Dolphin Stadium, Hard Rock Stadium, on January 27th. It's going to be a home game for Girona. Yeah, so we knew it was going to be feature a big team, and that team is Barcelona. Uh, can you say anything about Girona? They're owned by the City Football Group, which <laughs> owns Man- Manchester City. So oh, interesting. The Didn't fact know that, that that's the team that's playing in this has me raise an eyebrow. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about this is that they're offering Girona ticket holders like uh, multiple options where they're going to, for f- 1,500 people, they're going to pay for their flight and their hotel. And if you don't go, you, there are 5,000 tickets available for uh, the Girona supporters that want to go to the reverse fixture at the Camp Nou, and then they get 20% refunded on their season ticket. Or if you don't want to do either of those, you get a 40% refund on your season ticket because season tickets are a way to basically um, guarantee that you get to go to the when Madrid and Barcelona come to your stadium. So that right. that's a lot of remuneration. So that speaks to all the money that the team's going to get. And I've seen reports that are say, saying that they're going to get $4 million just from one game, which maybe doesn't seem like that much for a smaller club like Girona. You would think <laughs> that it would be a huge amount of money. But again, it's you know it's not a tiny backwater team. It's a team that just happens to be owned by Manchester City, <laughs> the people that yeah. own Manchester City. So that kind of... It's interesting. I haven't looked at the calendar when exactly this falls, but what if the Dolphins are in like the championship game or deep in the NFL playoffs? It seems like it <laughs> could be a conflict. Uh, yeah depends I I think uh, La Liga uh, is not bullish on Ryan Tannehill (laughs) (laughs) anything to say about the first few rounds of fixtures in in La Liga obviously Barca and Real are both uh, off to a perfect start yeah I think it's been interesting watching Real they've been uh, the first game the attack was kind of non-existent but then they've really turned it on since then again it's you know neither Real or Barca or have had tough games yet, but, you know, it's... I saw someone comparing Benzema this year to Rooney at United the year after Ronaldo left because Rooney went from... I think he had, like, eight goals or ten goals a season before Ronaldo's last season and then hit, like, 27 the next year just because of all the, the space that's there for him. So, so far, it's been a pretty... You couldn't ask for a better start for Madrid uh, in the post-Ronaldo era. And then, you know, Barcelona just destroyed Huesca 8-2 <laughs> the yeah. other day. So both of those teams look great. Speaking that, that, of that's Ronaldo. That's the analysis I can, I can give you guys. <laughs> Barcelona and Real Madrid look great. <laughs> I like that. I like that analysis. We can uh, copy and paste it every year. <laughs> uh, speaking of Ronaldo, Juve is off to a flying start as well, top of the league. But... CR7, 23 shots and zero goals. We should mention that his son... Trash. His son, Cristiano Ronaldo's son, scored four goals on his debut (laughs) for the Juve under nines. Should they call up Ronaldo's son and play him? Maybe they should. (laughs) Maybe they should. Actually, I saw that Juve beat Parma and that the goal score for Parma was one Gervinho. Yep. I had no idea Gervinho was on Parma. You a Parma fan now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is like this is what happened with Ronaldo last year, right? We had the same conversation. He didn't score for the first however many games, and yeah, 
It's not even worth talking about it. He's going to end up scoring a shitload of goals. Yep. Uh, I, uh, we learned anyone who said otherwise last year should have learned their lesson. So I haven't really been following Serie A too closely, but from what I gather, with Juve starting so strongly and teams like Napoli and Inter stuttering out of the gate, it seems like a pretty done, not done deal, obviously, but uh, nothing really seems like it's going to knock Juve off this season. Yeah. I, uh, I wrote a piece last week about the teams whose title odds in Europe improved the most, and Napoli was one of those teams because they beat Lazio and AC Milan in their first two games, which are you know two of the tougher games on the schedule. And then they proceeded to lose 3 nothing to Sampdoria this weekend, and Juve is perfect. So Juve, Juve came in with like sub-50% odds to win, and now they're up to 60%. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's probably it's the top the race for the rest of the top four is going to be a lot of fun I think in Italy but uh, Juve is do not bet against Juve. <laughs> what can you tell me about Spal, the team in fourth place currently in fourth place? <laughs> I know that they've they've been a sort of hipster favorite team in Italy for a while. Uh, I can tell you that they are. 22% favorite, 22% odds of relegation. So they're, they're, they're favored to not get relegated. Um, I can tell you that much. Okay, let's root for them to make the Champions League then. They're, they're going to do it. I saw that Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, Luka Modric and Mo Salah were the three nominees for FIFA's The Best Men's Player Award. Uh, Lionel Messi, for the first time since 2006, didn't make the finalists. Also, Griezmann, uh, Antoine Griezmann, notably, not included. Ronaldo's won this award twice in a row. The same nominees were for... They had the same exact finalist for the UEFA Player of the Year, which was won by Luka Modric. Do you have anything to say about all of this? I mean, like... <laughs> what are, These awards, I guess, you know, what do you think? Is it Does it matter? I mean, it matters to Ronaldo, I guess. I heard he was... There was reports that he was really furious that he didn't win the UEFA Player of the Year. Well, he didn't even go to the ceremony. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a hard time getting worked up about this because, y- you know, it's like, it's this, we have this conversation, I feel like, with every sport where it's like, if you just gave the award to the best player in the sport, it would go to the one of the same two people every year. Like, yeah. based on the criteria of the best player in the world, it's absurd that Messi is not <laughs> one of the three. But it's like, I don't care. And also, like, we know that these awards, like, take into account all of these different narratives and the winning La Liga is like a only apparently a tiny part of that narrative. Um, so like, you know, if Argentina made it to the semifinals of the World Cup, I'm sure Messi would be one of the three, um, which is, you know, if you want to like objectively award this thing perfectly, then that's silly, but like we're not doing that. I guess it's it's funny to me don't you kind of think that it's kind of weird that there wasn't one French player in the final three? Given yeah, like might, the I, history of these, I think it's just Cup weird here? that I think it's just weird that the UEFA and FIFA Player of the Years have the exact same three finalists. I mean, I guess that just shows how dominant Europe is, but um, it's kind of a little boring. I think Mosul is going to win anyway. The award is announced on September twenty fourth. If you care, all right. Wrapping up now, 
couple transfer moves. The transfer deadline came and went. Nothing really happened. I just two things caught my eye. Yaya Torre to Olympiacos, who are in the Europa League. Marchis- Marchisio uh, to Zenit St. Petersburg. Claudio Marchisio, of course, from Juventus. Uh, well, let's talk about the UEFA Nations League. But actually, first, Brazil is in the States right now. Uh, they're playing the U.S. at MetLife on September 7th, which I guess is this weekend. And then they're hosting El Salvador at FedEx Field, where the Redskins play, uh, on September 11th. We'll get to see Timothy Weah against Neymar. Also, you know who was called up? And we, we never mention, we, we usually don't talk about him in, when we do like hype ratings or Americans flourishing in Europe. But Yedlin. Yedlin's still on. DeAndre Yedlin, uh, of course, the Newcastle right back, scored a great goal against City. Yep. Uh, and over the weekend. And he's still only 25. Speaking of fullbacks, <laughs> he's good. Do you rate Do you rate Yellen? Okay, you do. I mean, I think he he's one of the few people who's like physically capable of covering an entire side of the field himself. The way he got into the box for that goal was amazing. Just I mean, ran right by Jesus, I think. And yeah, just, he. I mean, I guess it it helped him that it was a center forward <laughs> trying to track him back. But yeah, that was like you kind of. It's one of those things you saw it coming from like. 60 yards away and he just yeah. got onto the end of it and finished it. I, I think he's he's a good player. Like he uh it does feel like he's older than 25. I but I guess he was, you know, 21 at the World Cup when he famously pocketed Eden Hazard. <laughs> I'm a Yedlin fan. I like Yedlin. Me too. Uh all right, and finally, of course we're heading into an international break here. Uh, and the beginning of the UEFA Nations League. So I read about like 10 different blog posts. What is the UEFA Nations League and how does it work? And I've been reading these posts actually since they announced the creation of it. And I still can't really quite grasp. The point of it is obviously for these international breaks to be a little less boring and for there to be games with stakes. So just in the most broadest way I can explain it is... 55 countries, four leagues, in each of the four four leagues from League A, B, C, D, and then in each league there's four groups. Ultimately what's going to happen is next June there's going to be a Final Four competition featuring the teams that advance from League A, which is the league with the best teams, your France's, your Germany's, etc., and then there was going to be some like promotion and relegation in between leagues, League D to League C to League B to League A. And then somewhere down the line, Euro qualification, it's going to have an effect on that because you can earn your way to the Euro qualification playoffs based on your performance in the Nations League. But Euro qualifying, Euro 2020 qualifying is its own separate thing with its own separate group. So it's really fucking confusing. I really, I don't know. I don't even really care to know what it is. I guess it's just like... A, you know, like a friendly with a little bit higher stakes. What do you make of it? Do you care? Yeah, I do. I uh, I think it's basically these games are replacing friendlies is the best way to describe it. And there are relative, like medium stakes implications for Euro 2020 qualification, um, which just makes means the games mean something. And I think it's, you know, we talked about this during the World Cup. It's international soccer's fun because it's unpredictable, right? Like it, yep. we just we're talking about the same teams usually at the end of the year um, in Europe every time, 
And like now we're going to get to see, I mean, it depends how the teams kind of take these, but like on Thursday, Germany and France are playing. It's not a friendly. It's a game that means something. I'm going to watch that. You know, while if yeah. it was a Germany-France friendly, I'd maybe catch the highlights and like click through the lineups to see who was getting playing time. But like the actual gameplay is not compelling. So I think anything that can kind of keep international soccer humming along and keep the interest in it in a way that we don't just have to pay attention every two or every four years, I think it's a good thing. And it, and it's it's it provides an alternative and a lot more kind of uncertainty uh to what we see every week in with club soccer geez i was really i was all cynical about it and you just changed my mind i mean come on we've got germany france italy poland france netherlands yeah there's some good games portugal italy no ronaldo ronaldo is not playing in this opening set he wants to get more Howard. acclimated to Turin. <laughs> <laughs> And also, uh, on that note, Adam Lalana already injured in England. I shouldn't what a laugh. surprise. It's, it's not funny. <laughs> Actually, I had this thought, though. We have this in June, next June, this Final Four competition. They're eventually going to name uh, a Nations League champion. Yeah. Do, do you think the country should get a star for that? Hell yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> giant, like a giant one that you put over the entire front of the jersey. It should come as no surprise that France are the betting favorite uh, yeah. to win the Nations League. I guess we'll see, you know, as it takes shape, it might get... I mean, this is the first inaugural fixtures of the Nations League. It'll probably get interesting. And yeah, we'll have a Final Four tournament uh, next June. Uh, that's basically, uh, you know, a winner-takes-all international tournament. So I guess that'll be fun uh, in lieu of a, a Euro or a World Cup. So... We'll look forward to that, and you guys should look forward to us coming back in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Donnie. Peace, everybody. <laughs>